What, one of the things that was striking yesterday as we did the introductions and go-around, two things that were striking. The first was how many people thanked the others here and said that the common inspiration of us sitting together really gave a sense of strength and or courage or, or um, energy, inspiration that we could share. Um, and I feel that as our Sangha grows. It's not just teachers and students or one person um, inspiring another, but there's some co-creation that we do, uh, especially in an old student's retreat like this, where we know, in a sense, at least what we're coming to do together. Um, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's really the third refuge for very good reason. The other thing that was striking is how many people had a hard time, that people work with some very deep pain or loss or sorrow or difficulty in their own lives or in the lives of others that they love or care for or work with. Um, and that to practice and face that is a rite of passage that we share, the rite of passage of being willing to stop and go inward and go through the fire and the difficulties and the beautiful things and all of that to come to some center, some place of wakefulness and compassion in the midst of the deepest forces of our being. There is a, a friend who uh, died of cancer recently and she wrote as uh, she was recording her uh, cancer, she said, after I had heard of the cancer and learned of it and that it had metastasized through my body, I had long periods when I felt incredibly shaky, crying a lot, very agitated, close to falling apart, dwelling on fears of pain and thoughts of death. And then, as I would sit with it, unbidden, would come the thoughts of all who are suffering on this planet at this moment, of all who have suffered in the past, and I would immediately feel a wave of peace and calm pass through me. I no longer felt alone. I no longer felt singled out. Instead, I felt an incredible connection with all these people, as if we were part of the same huge family. Even in the sorrow and the suffering, which is one of the bonds of our life. There is no life that doesn't have suffering, as there is no life that doesn't have beauty and joy. Through our genuine attention to that, we find something more universal, our connection with one another. Now, after the Buddha had taught for a short time, not for more than a year or two. He had a group of 60 enlightened disciples, it's said in the stories. And he called them all together at one point, and he said, well, you've all mastered this meditation. You've all become free in your hearts and your beings. He said, so now go forth. No two of you in the same direction. Go forth to every province and village and town and state in this land, 
and teach or share through your being and your words what you have learned. Teach it in the vernacular. Someone asked, should we do it in some special sacred language? And he said, no, do it in the language of the place where you live, of that time and that culture, out of compassion for every being that you meet. And teach and model and exemplar the Dharma, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So it's very wonderful sutra. Now the question may come, how can we do this in our lives, in this culture? So what I'd like to do now is is complete the series of integration exercises we did yesterday with the last of these exercises. So this exercise will be uh, an inner meditation of about five minutes or so, no longer, maybe three, And it deals with how we can go into situations of complexity, of speed, of difficulty, of our own frustration, and bring the practice to life at that time. So in a moment, when I have you close your eyes, or ask you to, I'm going to ask you to picture or see either the place where you work or some place in your life where there's great difficulty, preferably the place you work, but it can be some other difficulty. And we're going to work with how you might bring the practice into that very situation. So let your eyes close. And imagine, or sense, or feel, or picture, whatever way you get information inside that you are leaving the retreat in Yucca Valley, gliding down the highway or wherever it is, and some time is passing, a day, a few days, gradually your retreat goes off into the past and you get back into the rhythm of your life. You live where you live and you go to your work daily, a number of days or weeks are going by, and then it's time to go to work and you find yourself appearing, you sense or picture or feel or imagine that you're in the place of work or in some place of great difficulty in your life. And you look around first and you just see yourself there. There you are. Become aware of what that feels like in your body to be in that place. How you hold yourself what energy is present. And now, as you find yourself there, what it looks like, what it feels like to be there, become aware if there's anything new that you can learn just by seeing it freshly. At this point, then, let the difficulties begin to arise. Let that very difficult person or that very difficult circumstance start to happen and see it with clarity. 
But let yourself do it as usual. There it is. You're in the thick of it. They're doing this or it's that way. And you see yourself responding and getting right in the, into the middle of your difficulties. Just as usual. Sense or remember or feel that. And let it reach its peak, its pinnacle, where it really is the most difficult. And now all of a sudden, you hear the doorbell ring or a knock at the door, or even if you're outside, there's something happening, and you say, excuse me for a moment. And you just pause in that situation and walk to the door of your office or room or house or whatever. And to your surprise, you will discover, coming to the door, one of two or three people. It'll either be the Buddha or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of infinite mercy and compassion, or Mother Mary. You open the door, and there's this amazing figure. And they say to you, having a hard day? <laughs> And you look at them and, and nod, and they say, I've come to assist you. And what they do is they ask if they could please take your clothes and your body for a little while. They're going to switch. You become invisible, and they take on just what you're wearing. The Bodhisattva of infinite compassion, or the Buddha, puts on your clothes and your body. And they say, come, let me show you how I might handle it. And so you're invisible, and you follow them back. You picture or sense them going back in the midst of this situation. And you just get to watch. How's the Buddha going to do this one? Or the Bodhisattva of mercy? And so see what they do. What their body is like as they handle that difficulty. what kind of response they might make with silence or words. What attitude or spirit they bring to that place of difficulty. So you feel that, and you see it. And then they say, excuse me, I have to go to the door again, or I have to go out again, and they pause. And they walk back to that place that you met them. You go along with them. And they give you back your clothes and your body and take on their beautiful robes again. And they look at you with tremendous kindness and mercy. And they reach within their robes and pull out a little gift to give you, kind of a reminder to keep with yourself. Let yourself see or know or imagine or somehow be aware of what this gift is they have for you. And then they reach over and touch you gently on the heart 
or on the shoulder or somewhere, very kindly, and whisper a few words of advice in your ear. Just remember this. And you thank them and bow, and they bow back their respects to you. And they disappear. And then you let yourself come back to this room, gently, eyes open. So I would like to hear from people, if you would, um, what kind of difficulties you were in and who came to visit and what that was like for you. Please. I work in intensive care units and I, uh, I was in the middle of a medical crisis in a small little cubicle with around 10 different people and the doctor who is my nemesis, or who I have trouble with, was there, and he's a very depressed, very angry person who I constantly buy into, and I always feel inadequate, become tense, and make mistakes, or don't think like I could. And um, the Buddha came, knocked on the door. The Buddha came to your intensive care unit. Right, the Buddha uh -huh. came to my intensive care unit. And took on my body, and the thing that I noticed about him was that he was never lost his composure and was very, um, very, very, very loose and very quiet in his body, but at the same time uh, very attentive and moving in a lot of different ways all the time. Never stop moving, never have to stop, but very, very, um, there was energy, kind of a bounciness. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a bouncy energy. It was a quiet, it was just very flowing and, and he just was reassuring everybody else. While, while this crisis was going on, and they get very bad sometimes. And um, the thing that I, I noticed most about him was the energy wasn't stopped up. The energy was very, very moving all the time. Fluid. Fluid, fluid. And his, his reassuring, his, his, his positiveness was very, very, <clears throat> oh was very good. And the fact that he was, and his response to the doctor was silence. He just didn't respond. He didn't react. Didn't react. Didn't react at all. And what, did, what did he whisper to you as he left? Uh, he whispered, um, don't be afraid. You're as good as any person here. And um, you can do what you have to do. You know, I, basically is that I belong here and that mm -hmm. I'm as good at this as anybody there. And I am, but I forget that. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> and uh, um, then he gave me a little, a little Buddha, a little sitting Buddha. I'm going to keep my pocket so that I can put my hand in my pocket and remember if I have to. Thank you. Thank you. Someone else, please. While I was uh, sitting in my 
in my house, so uh, trying to work on some of the things I'm interested in working on, and becoming very, very frustrated and feeling that I wasn't going to be able to do this. I simply wasn't adequate to it. I could not, didn't know enough, I didn't have enough information, I didn't have enough spirituality. There was no way I could possibly convey what I was trying to convey. And I could feel, as you gave a direction, I could feel myself becoming absolutely overwhelmed when this happens quite frequently. And uh, the Buddha came and uh, uh, came in and walked into, my, into a room I used as a Jirai. And Jirai uh, says, wow, this is great. He sits down in the chair and looks at the computer and says, oh, this is wonderful. Look at this. Oh, great. And then he starts playing with the computer. And then he starts, then he just starts sitting up. His, the whole thing is his, his attitude is as an adventure. Mm. It's, a, it's an opportunity. Look, oh, look at, look at the possibilities. And, and instead of seeing it as one kind of obstacle, sees it as a whole variety of play. And uh, uh, by that time, I was in tears uh, sitting here. And, uh, and then when he left, uh, the image came to mind as he gives me a, an old-fashioned fountain pen. Perfect for a writer. And, uh, and, and I, I don't know what he whispered in my ear. There's a sense of contact, but there, was no, there were no words. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. I should invite him in to do some of my writing as well. <laughs> Someone else who had difficulties, conflict, speak up loudly when you. I was working in a uh, in the psychiatry clinic where I work for the HMO, and uh, I was absolutely overwhelmed with phone calls, people needing charts, and uh, just an incredible amount of demand on me all the time. I just felt very overwhelmed. Um, and when there was a knock at the door, it was Kuan Yin. And um, when she took over for me, I noticed that the way she handled it was to investigate each thing very carefully and very calmly and really explore each problem in, and then she was very firm in the way she handled it. Her, her limits and her decisions were just very clear and very caring about the people that she was involved with. But I, I noticed that it, the people felt cared about, even though they didn't always get what they want, what they wanted. But there was such a sense of, of her being very compassionate and really moving into things, which sometimes I sort of move away from it and feel overwhelmed. But that just makes it worse. <laughs> she went right into each thing. It was, it was just wonderful to watch. And <clears throat> when she was done, she gave me a little Kuan Yin, those little white statues of her, and she whispered to me that we could do this again anytime I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> She's right, of course. That's great. Another, please. I did this exercise for the first time last June, and uh, I took the same situation. I had, um, yeah, I had the uh, in our county 
medical center where we're starting a child and adolescent ward. Um, last year, um, the Buddha came in and uh, gave me a, a heart with lips. And uh, uh, I realized that the thing that I done wrong this last year uh, is to uh, try and become a medical director uh, in a place where uh, there isn't any place for that. So then I have to make everything happen. Um, and the uh, Bodhisattva of Compassion uh, came in and, and uh, Stop that. And they uh, uh, became quiet, receptive, uh, demanded by that, that things came. Um, not giving you the same part with lips, but on a uh, lotus blossom, a very quiet pool. Uh, and said, um, giving doesn't come from what you want, it comes from what need you receive. So I was really finding that place of stillness that could not react at all, just wait and listen and respond. In a difficult situation, it's hard to do that because you tend to want to fix things. Make things. Make things. Thank you. We could go on, but since we have other things to do to close this morning, and there would probably be a a hundred other interesting situations of difficulties in hospitals and homes and uh, offices and so forth. One of the things that is most important to recognize out of this exercise it comes through a simple question, where did that Buddha or Bodhisattva come from? Where was that being to be found? That's right. <laughs> that which understood how to work with the most difficult, angry, depressed, irritable doctor in an intensive care unit where everyone's going crazy wasn't somebody in India. It came out of yourself or in a difficult work situation or for some other people in a painful family situation or writing and facing uh, difficulty or block or whatever, that Buddha or that Bodhisattva uh, is really here within us. So in one way, it's not the practice of cultivating or making. It's not a making of yourself into the Buddha, but it's taking enough time and place to calm down for a moment and listen and let that Buddha which is within us or that Bodhisattva show us the way to act. <laughs>
trusting that part of ourselves. And what more than anything I've heard in doing this exercise with people, more than anything, what is brought to that situation is very rarely words or new ideas or new plans. The Buddha generally doesn't do that, or the Bodhisattva. Much more, it's simply the being, the spirit of being a little calm, or kinder, or more tender, or not being ruffled by the movement and the chaos and the waves around. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, there are a lot of myths, if you will, or a lot of archetypes of the way that this enlightenment can manifest. There's the Buddha, kind of the archetype of the monk who lives as a renunciate. But there was also Ananda, who was his servant, who was a little bit like Hanuman, spent uh, 45 years or 40 years doing nothing but serving the Buddha. And that was a different expression instead of going around teaching. It was just to express uh, awakening through service. Or there was Anathapindika, one of his great disciples, who was this very wealthy, rich merchant whose expression of his Buddha nature was to create beautiful monasteries. Or um, there are feminine uh, archetypes in the same way. There were yoginis and uh, uh, renunciates, nuns who went out in the forest. And then there are, are ones, whether ancient or contemporary, who uh, there was a famous woman in the sutras who became enlightened, and her main function was to cook for monks and nuns and provide everybody with just the right food so that they would get enlightened. It's a wonderful sutra. It's the Nourishment Sutra, really, the sutra of tuning into that which can be provided for someone else, that kind of space or nourishment that they can awaken. Um, there are a hundred different ways it can happen. Oh, as doctors and nurses and in the ICU and as writers and carpenters and contractors and all these different forms of the Buddha. To do it, however, also is uh, we really have to respect the difficulty of it. Here the Buddha shows himself, or Kuan Yin shows herself in us. But we need a lot of support, and I just want to remind you in brief of the most important supports. Uh, which we go over in more detail at the end of initial retreats. First is sitting every day, that because our culture and our world is so caught up in fear and in materialism and in the uh, speed of our time and in separation and duality, you are swimming upstream if you go in the direction of oneness. And one of the most important helps is to have a place that you make, a sacred place in your house, your cushion, a little altar, or some special books, or whatever it is that reminds you to sit. A regular time, morning or afternoon. And to make that as much a part of your life as brushing your teeth. Mental flossing, someone called it, you know. <laughs> And it's as important if you go out with a dirty mind and heart in some way. You know, it creates problems. Dirty, filled with fear and greed and, and uh, delusion and 
and anger and all of those things. Sangha helps in that. Find a sitting group near where you live. Or if there isn't one, sit with the Tibetans or the Quakers or anybody who values silence. Go and spend time with them. Get help because we do support one another. Or start a sitting group if you'd like. There isn't a sitting group in your area. Uh, write to IMW or IMS and get the um, names from the mailing list of people around your zip code area and do a little mailing out to them and have a sitting group once a week where you sit together, maybe take tea, do a little discussion and listen to a Dharma tape. It's a wonderful thing to do. I encourage people to do that very much. Do it once a week or twice a week if you feel like it. Reading spiritual books, sometimes before you sit doing a little walking meditation, and then to sit down and pick up some book that inspires you, Buddhist sutras or Krishnamurti or whatever text really touches you, and read just a few paragraphs to reawaken that Buddha nature that's there within you, and then sit with that spirit. Work with metta, as we talked about. Use it as part of the sitting when you begin or when you end. Use it in your daily life, walking around down the street. You can do metta for each person. As you pass them, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may your heart open. All of a sudden, the street is very different. Or as someone suggested, in a traffic jam. You're sitting there, and instead of just waiting for it to get done impatiently, you do metta for all the people in the cars around you who are all sitting there in their little boxes, basically. And then instead of it being a difficulty, you have half an hour or 15 minutes to open your heart, or on an airplane or a bus. You go back now, you'll be taking the bus or the airplane. Put down your magazine or your book or whatever. And sit there and just do some metta. Now, may that person be happy, that old man and that teenager, that young person there, that crying baby. Be peaceful, be awakened with joy. And pretty soon you feel this connection with every being on that airplane or the bus. And then when it lands or the bus stops, you could almost wave goodbye, you know? And you haven't said a word. I don't mean be weird, you know, or do anything. Don't let them know. But you're just sitting there and, and opening your consciousness to include a connection with these beings. And then when they, when they go, it's like they're part of your family. And we can do that a lot. It really changes our life. Now, it doesn't mean that all your time should be spent on other beings. Because there are cycles, and you've probably heard my talk at other retreats of the spiritual life and social responsibility. Sometimes the cycle is to go inward, and it's critical that each of us take a time of reflection and quieting, and listening to our heart, and learning to face the forces of our own fear and greed and delusion and uh, face our own birth and death. Because if we don't face that, if we can't face our shadow and our difficulties, then our life will just be one of running in circles. Or if we haven't faced our own anger and rage and aggression, how can we stop the war that causes so much sorrow in the world? We have to understand it in ourselves. It must be done if we want to save the earth. Somebody has to learn how to face fear and greed and rage and anger and prejudice 
and not be so caught up in it. And that's your responsibility and mine. So there are cycles in which there is no greater gift you can give to the earth than to stop doing anything and listen and face and open, go through the fire, face everything. And then there are other cycles where what is natural and called for and essential is to go to your family or your neighborhood or the place that you work or the nuclear arms race or the field of politics and economics, all of them with your gift, with your creativity, and most of all with the understanding that you saw in that past exercise, with that some place of peace or love, and bring that back to the earth as an expression of your practice. And one isn't better than the other. They're really talking about the art of listening and knowing when it's time to turn inward and knowing when it's time to serve. There's no simple answer to most of the questions people ask. How should I practice? How should I live my life? I have no idea. I don't even know how to live my own life. And no one has ever lived your life before. It's like sitting in front of that computer. The Buddha got all excited. He's going to write something that's never been written before. You get to live a life in a way that no one has ever done it. So there isn't an answer. But there's a spirit that you can bring to it of attention, of some time being inward, of service. Also the precepts. If you remember one basic teaching for household life, it's non-harming. Not harming others and not harming yourself. They, you know you're included in those precepts in the compassion. You have to remember that. One of the great questions that arose at the Women and Buddhism Conference last summer in San Francisco, one of the most crowded events was the question of how do we tell the difference between codependence and compassion? When you're really entangled and helping someone because you're afraid to let go or because you, you want to help them um, because you need to be needed or need to be liked. How to help and serve in a way that fosters everyone becoming awakened and free, rather than fosters dependence. These can't be answered. There's no, there, there was no answer to that. But there's a, a short sutra in which these people come to see the Buddha, a young girl and her old grandfather. And they work together as kind of a traveling village circus act or a fair. Uh, to make money, and they do balancing. And one day the grandfather says to the young girl, you know, this is our livelihood, so you should be very careful about what happens to me as you do it, as you climb up on the balance pole. And I'll be very careful about what happens to you, and then we'll be safe. And the young girl said, not so, grandfather. I will take very care, great care of what happens to me, and doing so protect myself and you. And you please take very good care of what happens with you. And doing so, you will protect yourself and me. And they couldn't decide which was right, so they went to the Buddha. And the Buddha paid his respects to the young girl. And he said, she's absolutely right. If you take care with how you speak and how you walk, and really what is in your own heart as you act, then you take care of all the other beings around you. 
Do you understand that? It's not just to serve others, but it's to serve ourselves, to take care for ourselves. And in doing that, in understanding and listening, then the service for the others comes directly and immediately out of that place. It's like raising children. If you haven't had, if you have had children, you know this, but if you haven't, you can't just do nice things for them. You have to say no. You have to set limits. You must be able to say yes, and you must be able to say no. And they're both equally important. And you know what? People won't always like that. They won't like you. Do you know anyone that everyone has always liked? The Buddha had people try and kill him. Look what happened to Jesus. Now, maybe you don't even want to take it on. But it's not to be liked. The point is not to be liked or, or disliked. But it's to be enough in touch with what you value that you act from that place, that place of the Buddha. Someone gave me this card. It comes from, a, you know, one of those racks in the drugstore. It says, people are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People favor underdogs, but only follow top dogs. Fight for the underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build it anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help them anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you may end up with nothing. You're going to end up with nothing anyway. <laughs> It's good for your heart, so give the world your best anyway. It's not bad for the drugstore, huh? <laughs> it's not a short journey. It is years and years and years. It's the task of a life to heal ourselves, our sorrows, our separateness, to understand how to listen and act from that place of Buddha. And you'll come to retreats over and over, and you'll sit your daily sittings, and you'll work with right speech, and then forget, and gossip, and undermine, and then say, ooh, that didn't work very well. You know, you'll harm other beings, and then you'll realize, I don't want to do that anymore. And you do it over and over. It's a refining process until your being starts to, day by day, learn what it is to live from the center of your heart. And it's wonderful. That's really what our life is for. So that's what I had to say this morning as a way of closing. Um, I would again like to make a few minutes for questions to myself or to James. And I promised I would talk for five minutes at some point about Spirit Rock, but I'll do that after some questions. Sam. Yeah, um, I have a question about the use of noting. Uh, 
off retreat and what you what you do and how you work with that or whether you do the use of noting off retreat I find noting to uh, to be mostly a retreat tool for myself uh, and what I do off retreat is uh, what has been called a cover of mindfulness rather than trying to note specifically although sometimes the noting will come back um, in my daily practice I try more just to find a place of some equanimity or balance with things um, and it's not as precise it's not as wakeful as noting um, but I'm just unable to sustain that and it feels too much of a struggle for me or artificial uh, instead it's a place where when I'm able to do it where I'm present with things and I notice then if there's much grasping or if there's much anger or if there's much reaction it's almost like it's even and there's a sensor on a little bit of radar and as soon as I get off balance then something shows itself and once in a while in that place I might note if I feel particularly stuck I'll use the noting I'll close my eyes and say all right I feel really stuck I'm really angry or I'm really upset or I really uh, nervous about this let me see what happens and I'll close my eyes or I'll keep them open depending on the circumstance and I'll do a little noting and often that will develop that mindful state a bit stronger and things will open up but that's that's my experience with it um, best I can say to you Rita this question has to do with um, observing reaction and repression mm -hmm. I know that the meditation practice itself is used not to repress at all but I do know that as a human being, it can be used that way. The meditation practice can be used yes. that way. So the, the difference of that. Um, you know, there's a danger in everything. If you express, there's a lot of danger that you'll not only ex let out what's in there, but you can then lead to actions that hurt yourself or others. If you suppress, as you know, you can make yourself sick and tight and really not live your life. And meditation, uh, there is a danger of suppression. That you pay attention and that in some subtle way when something is painful or difficult, your, uh, some aspect of yourself, it can be your anger or your desire, your sexuality, or something that you've never come to terms with, you use awareness to kind of push it down. And so one of the arts in meditation is to listen to see whether you're really allowing or whether you're suppressing. And I guess the only thing I would say, it's again this quality of listening, is for you perhaps to take stock in your practice over time, to ask yourself a question, am I using this practice to really open and listen or is there some area of my life, my being, my feelings, my body that I use practice to not feel or to not be open to? And if that's so, then you might make a special point both of listening for it, bringing it into attention, or even of expressing it, of making sounds or acting it out in such a way that you're no longer afraid of it. I don't know if that answers your question. That answers part of it. And then there's the other part of interacting with other people and the, the uh, things that can come up in that. Interacting with other people and what can come up. Play with it. I, I, I will say in my life, as I grew up, my, my psychological type, I was a good boy. 
I tried to be very good and very peaceful and make peace in my family, which was pretty chaotic a lot of the time, and very, very painful. That was my strategy. Um, and I was terrified of anger. My father was a very angry person. Um, and so when I first started to open to anger, I discovered that I had suppressed a lot of it because it was so frightening. And I began to note it and be aware that there was a lot in there. At some point, it was necessary actually to experiment with it, to get angry with other people, not to hurt them particularly. Uh, I don't mean to be harmful, but just to let it out and see what it did. And I needed to do that just to understand it so that I wasn't terrified of it. So again, as you work over, over the years in your practice, it's really listening to the places that you are held or stuck and seeing what's skillful. Whether for some people who let stuff out all the time, the main thing they need to do is just learn to sit and feel it and not react. For others who suppressed it all the time, the balance is to let yourself really open to feel it and to experiment to see that as long as you're not really trying to harm a person, that it's okay to feel your energies. It's an inner listening and to take it as an exploration. Nobody's ever done your life before. So you get to experiment. Jordan. I've been going through a therapist who's been doing some very powerful breath and body things with me. And at one point, uh, a great deal of rage started to come up, particularly towards my parents. Uh, including That's the not a week to follow <laughs> I got that. Uh, including very violent fantasies. Mm. Uh, and she said uh, that, uh, among, among other things, her assessment of me was that my will had been in some way damaged. Um, and that she felt that I should indulge in these violent fantasies and let myself just go with them as a way of letting that repair or recover in some way. She has a very strong spiritual orientation, but is not a Buddhist, and there is some difference, and I've been unclear how to work with what she's saying, um, whether to just say, well, okay, that's okay to indulge in those, or I should do something else, I should do forgiveness meditation, or, or what? Uh, so it's a very good question, and a deep one, sort of, we're going into a certain area here with these questions. Um, I think my own sense and experience in working with people is that she's basically right, except for one thing. I wouldn't use the word indulge, because indulge has a, a connotation of mindlessness, that you do it and you kind of just let yourself get lost in it. And that's not healing. In some way, to indulge uh, can be to do it unconsciously and, and in a sense, to um, practice that so that uh, rather than learning, it just gets strengthened. What I would say, if I were working with someone or when I've encountered murderous rage, which I have, because in you there is everything. If you haven't seen it yet, you will find Edia men and, and the murderers are in yourself as well as we could see the Buddha and Mother Teresa and the greatest compassion. All we contain everything. If it's been suppressed and if you haven't understood that part of yourself, then it's fine in your therapy and breathing or in paying attention or in your sitting to see it and really let it get as full-blown as it is. 
the spirit being one of understanding. I want to see what this is. How big is this fantasy? Or how powerful is this force? So rather than use the word indulge, I'd say, let yourself be aware of it and see its extent. And it's quite powerful and useful to do that. It can be very healing. Because otherwise you're always trying to keep it down and suppress it, and there's a fear that's built in. The key to the difference between reinforcing something and using it to find freedom is the quality of attention. Do it and be mindful. Notice. Pay attention to it. Then it becomes not very different than what we do when we sit here. And I, I really love in Tibetan Buddhism where they have Mahakala and uh, the guardian demons and all the wrathful forms of the great bodhisattvas because you have a sense that it's not just, you know, um, Peter Pan or something like that in practice, but that we have to face that, that power within us, those powerful forces, um, and to come to terms with them. Paul. Bringing practice into parenting. I wrote an article in the last issue of The Inquiring Mind, which was the part one of, of uh, parenting as practice, and I commend that to you, because it basically because it says most of what I would be able to tell you in an answer. Um, and there's more as children get older. There are other kinds of issues. But I'll just say one thing. Um, I'm not sure if it was in that article or not, that when Kala Rinpoche visited uh, some friends of mine who had a young child, and they said, how can we bring our children up so they're really spiritual? He said, don't worry about your children. Worry about yourself. You know, they don't do what you tell them much anyway. What they learn from is who you are. And so if you make your life uh, one that is non-harming or that is... Uh, an expression of Dharma, that's what your children will learn. There are some terrific books out on conscious parenting. Uh, everything uh, from Whole Child, Whole, pa Whole Parent, which is a beautiful book. There's a book called uh, Positive Discipline, uh, which is learning how to set limits with respect and, and uh, caring for beings from tiny to large ones that I recommend. There are a number of very good books on bringing a, a sense of uh, integrity and uh, spiritual caring to the process of parenting. And it's, it's something that's worth studying and reading, because we live in a culture where the majority of families have problems with addiction or other kinds of dysfunctional things, and it's really crazy. And we don't have very sane child-rearing practices. Um, so read about it. Um, and uh, reflect about it. My wife and I took a course in parental discipline that was, that was really, really helpful for us, called the STEP program. There are a number of things like that. Educate yourself. There's a whole dharma or art about uh, child-rearing that's just the same as the dharma of sitting that's worth learning about. And in doing so, it makes parenting wonderful. And I've had, I can't tell you how many parents I've had come up to me in other circumstances I, I, um, 
saying, I, I'm just tearing my hair out. I don't know what to do with my children. Or, or going to the parks, taking Caroline to, or the supermarkets and watching children start to act out in ways and parents whack them and yell at them and say, if you do that, I'll never, the, never, you know, you'll never get any sweets again in your life. Or, or, or a kid does something, you know, drops something. And normally, you know, children drop things because they're not so coordinated. And the parent come over and smack the kid and say, don't you do that again. The child is all terrified and doesn't know what they did wrong even. Um, because there's been very little conscious training in our culture, and the families are atomized. We live all in these little nuclear families. There isn't village culture anymore where there are grandparents and elders and wise men and wise women to kind of transmit how you hold a child and how you relate to them when they're angry. One other journal that I recommend to anyone interested in conscious parenting is Mothering Magazine, although it has some articles on fathering. Um, but of all the literature that comes through our house, we get stuff from Greenpeace and some radical political groups and uh, just, you know, those piles of mail from all these Save the Planet things. The most radical journal in a, in a very uh, ordinary guise is Mothering Magazine. It's really wonderful. There are articles on other cultures like the child-rearing practices in the African bush tribe or among the Eskimos, and how it's done in a way that creates a sane culture. And there are articles on uh, sleep practices. In, in our family, we do a family bed rather than having... Uh, it's only in recent industrial society that um, children have been put in other rooms in little cages. Uh, and in all the other cultures around, around the world, do you like to sleep by yourself when there are nice, pleasant, warm friends of yours around that you could sleep with? Of course not. You know? And in most every other culture, people sleep together. Um, but it's just very recent, and in Western technological cultures, industrial, that things have gotten so out of touch with organic life that we make little cages and put kids in and then they cry themselves to sleep. Um, so it really questions in Mothering Magazine and some of the conscious child raising. I'm not saying that you should do that practice, but it really questions a lot of the deep assumptions that have grown up in our time about family. Um, and I believe uh, for us that to look at family life will be a big part of Western Dharma. Both Krishnamurti and the Dalai Lama, when asked if they could do one thing in their teaching in the West, one thing that really mattered to them, they both said that they wanted <clears throat> to start schools and to do training for children and child-rearing and parenting things. Krishnamurti did start a series of schools, and I think it's the Dalai Lama's intention in some way to do that as well. So it's, it's a wonderful and a really deep question that you raise, and I'm not going to say any more at this point because our time is really ending, but to bring that same spirit of adventure and discovery to it, it's, it's a great practice. And I know you have a baby coming next month, so I wish you well with that. I think that's enough at this point, although I know that we could go on for a long time. I would like to say... Uh, a few minutes about Spirit Rock, and then maybe James has things he wants to add this morning, people leaving. We've looked for
for the past eight years for a center in the West Coast, having run perhaps 200 retreats in rental facilities. And as most of you know, almost all of you, we found this beautiful land uh, and purchased it uh, outside of San Francisco. We'd hoped to get a build place that was already built and just starting run year-round retreats, but we looked and looked and there just wasn't a place. We looked at 60 or 100 different places. They were either too far in the country or too old or too small, and they just didn't work. So it seems that God or the Buddha or our karma, whatever you, word you want to put on it, <clears throat> has decided that money raising and barn raising and building and dealing with municipal water supply <clears throat> and county planners and so forth is to be the practice of the Sangha at this point. It's certainly been my practice for the past few years, and it's good. It feels very important that the building of a center is also the building of Sangha and learning how to deal with these elements of American life. At this point, we have raised $1.6 million, purchased uh, almost a square mile of the most beautiful land, its own valley, only 45 minutes from the Golden Gate Bridge, one of the last really open areas in the Bay Area that you could buy from Nature Conservancy. And the million dollars for the land all went to them, and they used it for their rainforest project to preserve rainforest. So that's extraordinary to begin with. We've spent much of the rest of that money getting architects, permits, sewage, development, all kinds of things. It took 300 meetings in two years and $300,000 just to get all of the designs and the permit process through the county, because it's in a major city area. And now this spring we're ready to start building. We want to do two things at this center. One is make it a place for year-round retreats. So we've designed one half of the facility to have a meditation hall, dining room, and uh, single rooms for people to practice, 160 people. And the other, the dining hall is halfway between, is this meeting hall area where we can, at the same time, do all of the activities that speak about integrating the Dharma into the world, politics, art, family, and so forth. Um, and have programs that really learn to create and extend the principles of Buddha Dharma into the lives of anyone who wishes to come and practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.